Disc 17 Rainbows and Pots of Black Gold Jim Callahan was brought up piously, so when he told an audience in 1977 that God had given Britain her best opportunity for a hundred years in the shape of North Sea oil, there is a chance that he meant it. The Foreign Office, in a memo a little earlier, had called it a rainbow spanning the sombre horizon. These had been terrible days for Britain, with 25% inflation and the stock market plunging. The oil seemed like a fairy tale intervention for whichever group of politicians found themselves in power when the pot of gold could finally be yanked open. The story of what happened to the Almighty's handout, a ripple of organic residue left 9,000 feet below the seabed from dinosaur-haunted landscapes and warm seas of 200 million years earlier, is one of the most remarkable and under-discussed in modern British history. The discovery and exploitation of huge oil and gas fields far out under the cold, stormy and turbulent waters, so far out that the biggest fields were roughly equidistant between Scotland and Norway, is a modern epic of technical skill, bold finance, endurance and individual courage. Hundreds would die, few fortunes would be made. By the boom year before prices suddenly fell, 1985, Britain was producing 127 million tonnes and was responsible for nearly a tenth of world exports. She had broken free from the old shackles of oil dependency at least for a while. Official figures suggest Britain will be importing oil again by 2010, though many economists think it will be sooner. So we are talking about a span of between 30 and 40 years. Was it well managed, that great gift? The story is, to begin with, technically awe-inspiring. The oil in most of the rest of the world was ridiculously easy to win compared to the job of finding and pumping out very deep deposits a long way from dry land in very stormy seas. In civil engineering terms, from the steel and concrete jackets as tall as the post office tower that had to be built in specially chosen havens and floated hundreds of miles out, to the huge undersea pipelines dropped from boats, this was a project unlike any other in peacetime since the Victorians' creation of the railways in the 1840s. Its impact on the politics and public finances of Britain, first in the dying days of old labour and then during the crucial years of the early Thatcherite experiment in monetarism, can hardly be exaggerated. It helped bankroll Thatcherism, for Britain was self-sufficient in oil by 1980. As the future Chancellor, Nigel Lawson, noted, revenues for the government soared from zero in 1975 to nearly £8 billion in 1982 to 83, at which point they accounted for almost 8.5% of all tax revenues. Some economists, though certainly not Lawson, have argued that without it, the Thatcher experiment would have collapsed during 1981-22. One observer says, the industrial shakeout of the early 80s, of which unemployment above 3 million was the consequence, was indeed financed with the considerable help of the oil revenues. So there, to start with, is an irony. A great new source of national wealth helped to produce mass unemployment, or at least make it politically possible. The possibilities of the oil boom were not underestimated at the time. Thanks to the oil price shocks of earlier years, the power and wealth of the sheikhs, epitomised by the ebullient Saudi oil minister Yamani, was well understood. Could Britain have a little of that? In the 70s, in clubs of St. James's and the city offices of the Financial Times, or the new little tower block where The Economist was edited, they argued about whether oil would so boost the pound that manufacturing industry would be destroyed, or, alternatively, whether it would mean a golden age for Britain. 
when vast fortunes could be reinvested in wonderful schools and cutting-edge high-tech industries. Whitehall's defence experts worried about how to defend the hundreds of miles of pipes against Irish terrorists and the rigs against the Soviet Navy. In those parts of the Commons Tea Room and bars colonised by Labour MPs, there was a vigorous argument between those who wanted to see oil nationalised and kept under direct government control and those who felt this was impracticable. For by the time the big strikes had been made, the great American oil majors were the people who had actually invested in the risky and technically difficult business of finding the stuff and preparing to bring it ashore. In the first few years, official Britain was hugely excited by the whole thing. When the first oil arrived ashore in November 1975 at Cruden Bay in Aberdeenshire, the Queen was present with the Prime Minister, assorted other ministers, pipers, a huge tent, red carpets and crowds with Union Jacks. The oil workers, being in general rather hairy and impolite, were kept well out of the way. So it is curious that this great technical, economic and social story features so little afterwards in the memoirs and biographies of the politicians most affected by it. In her autobiography, Margaret Thatcher barely touches on North Sea oil, even though her husband Dennis was an oil man, involved in the near collapse of Burma oil in 1975, and even though she took a close day-to-day -day interest in the relevant cabinet committees. About this awesome story, she manages just four or five throwaway references, tacked to the end of remarks about exchange controls or tax policy. Geoffrey Howe dismisses the epic tale in a few words, far fewer than he devotes to the mildly amusing theft of his trousers from a train. Neither of them mentions the great tragedy of Piper Alpha when 185 men were burned or blown to death, two-thirds of the British toll in the Falklands War. The great tomes on Wilson and Callaghan, Major and Blair, likewise find nothing much to say about North Sea oil. Nigel Lawson writes lucidly about it, brushing aside the arguments in favour of treating oil as a national resource to be husbanded with his customary panache. In many of the more general histories, economic and political, North Sea oil gets meagre treatment. Its cultural legacy seems slender too. The occasional agitprop play, a few poems, but no memorable novel, television drama or film, unless one counts local hero, which is more about a village community. Those wild years when 80,000 hard-drinking, hard-working, brave and often dysfunctional men turned a corner of Scotland into the wild east have left few footprints. A rare historian of the industry points out that among Scotland's hundreds of museums, there is not one devoted to oil. Compared to the much-discussed miners' strikes, or the IMF crisis, or the city rude boys of the Big Bang, North Sea oil, which continues to profitably flow, is already forgotten. Why is this? Those parts of the national story that nobody seems keen to talk about have messages of their own. In the case of oil, embarrassment and confusion are part of the answer. For the truth is that the great adventure was lived at the edge of the British experience. It was not just that the rigs were so far from the coast, halfway to Scandinavia, and that the wild scenes were played out in the bars of Aberdeen and Shetland, both remote from the media in Glasgow, never mind London. It was also that the funding of the exploration and production was so heavily dominated by the United States and that so much of the technology was designed and built outside Britain that it is hard to tell, 30 years after it began to flow, quite what message God was really sending with the oil. The number of British refineries actually fell during the great oil decade of 1980 to 1990, from 21 to 13, and 40% of that was American-owned. 
Government advisers had prepared detailed plans about how to grab a great industrial bonanza on the back of the oil boom, but by 1974, when the rigs were desperately needed to cope with the huge discoveries out at sea, only three rigs out of 119 were being built in Britain. The aging, underfinanced yards of the Clyde, Tyneside, and Belfast, which in the 40s had still produced nearly 40% of the world's ships, were now down to 4%. Cheaper, better-equipped deep-water yards overseas had taken over. So when it came to the rigs, Norway, Finland, even France were getting more of the business. Scotland's specialist yards for the huge jackets, like the Meccano sets of giants at Nig, Ardesia, and Methil. Lurched, it has been well said, between clamour and closure. It was the same story with the all-important service boats bringing vital drilling supplies alongside. The technical breakthrough of positioning propellers at the bow as well as the stern, so they could keep position in heavy waters beside the platforms, was made by Norwegian yards. It was their boats, not British ones, which were then sold around the world. Even when it came to oil supply services, which more or less had to come locally, British companies were slow to catch up, and one little extra business overseas. Finance was a similar story. In the early days of exploration, the U.S. giants were able to fund their work in the North Sea themselves, developing rigs from their earlier experiences in the Gulf of Mexico. The opaque nature of their internal accounting and the much higher cost of getting any oil out meant they were appallingly hard for British ministers and the Treasury to deal with. The government's handling of early leases for exploration, blocks of a hundred square miles each, was criticised by the Commons Public Accounts Committee in 1972 as far too generous, as though Britain were a gullible shakedom. In the Middle East, they thought so too. Among the odder political vignettes of the 70s was an interview between Britain's energy minister Tony Benn and the Shah of Iran at the latter's palace in Tehran. There, after noting the signed photographs of Brezhnev, Mao, and the Queen. Ben was informed that North Sea oil could transform Britain's prospects if we were not imprudent. The Shah warned Ben to stand up to the American giants of the oil business. Ben went back and did his best, which, in the case of Amoco, left him boiling with rage. I felt like the president of a banana republic negotiating with a multinational. Labour's answer was to set up the British National Oil Corporation (BNOC) in 1976, which was meant to be both the government's eyes and ears in the industry, to buy 51% of the oil landed and then to sell it on. It gave the government some grip on the developing industry and built up formidable expertise at its Scottish headquarters. Yet it was essentially a bystander with modest powers compared to the great oil companies. Its oil-producing business was, in any case, privatised by Nigel Lawson in 1982, the largest privatisation the world had then seen, and the subsequent company Britoil was taken over by BP six years later. British business, as well as British manufacturing, was slow to seize the possibilities of the oil boom, though the Scottish banks and the merchant banks clustered round Edinburgh's genteel Charlotte Square began forming oil subsidiaries and hiring expert economists by the end of the 70s. Among the partnerships was one between Thompson Scottish Petroleum, part of the group which also owned the Scotsman newspaper, and Armand Hammer, the one-time business ally of Lenin, with Occidental. They found the Piper Field, one of the big ones following the huge 40s find by BP, and Brent by Shell and Exxon. There were many smaller oil-investing companies, some of them successful. Onshore, some Aberdeenshire companies did well in building the offices and prefabricated living quarters, servicing the endless helicopter flights, developing expertise in valves and electronic equipment. 
Yet the grand hopes of ministers back in the mid-seventies that the oil discoveries would kick-start a great renaissance in banking, engineering, shipbuilding and new service industry was very wide of the mark. Why was this? It was partly that the boom came just when British industry was at its lowest ebb, strike-prone, short of money, short of good management. It was partly that the oil-boosted pound did indeed make the recession of the early 80s even worse, rising faster and further than ministers expected. The petrocurrency helped squeeze the economy and improved efficiency at the inevitable cost of widespread closures, sufficient to enrage many naturally pro-conservative business people. Michael Edwards, chairman of the state-owned carmaker British Leyland, said at the time that if the government could not find a way to deal with North Sea oil, then I say leave the bloody stuff in the ground. Before 1979, Labour was struggling to rein in the American companies that had arrived early and eager. But after 1979, the Conservatives were determined to use the oil revenues quickly to pay debt and cut taxes, rather than to invest it in some long-term plan for industry. This was the key rate of depletion argument played out across Whitehall, which was really about how best Britain should use its bonus. The Norwegians, with a much smaller population and their industry run by the state, invested the proceeds at a great Nordic piggy bank. When the Scottish nationalists seized the oil issue in the early 70s, they came up with a similar plan for a Scottish oil fund, paying out a permanent dividend to benefit the Scots henceforth. The argument between extract as much as possible now and spend the proceeds and extract slowly and invest was, however, a complicated one, since nobody knew what would happen to the oil price. With North Sea oil so expensive to produce... Leaving the stuff under the seabed might mean that if the world price fell, it became uneconomic. Nor was it clear that money invested elsewhere by British ministers would turn out to be money well invested, particularly if it was also meant to kick-start industries. Under Labour, the so-called Varley assurances had been given to the oil industry, a promise that the government would not impose cutbacks beyond a certain level, but allow the oil companies to take out most of what they could. According to Professor Alex Kemp of Aberdeen University, who has been writing the official history of North Sea Oil, the argument in the early Tory years was between David Howell at the Department of Energy, who believed in slower extraction, and Howe at the Treasury, who needed the revenue as quickly as possible. Howe won the day, with Margaret Thatcher's consent, imposing a punitive 90% marginal tax rate and treating oil taxes just like income tax or VAT, even though oil revenue was finite, a one-off. Professor Kemp concludes that oil revenues were used as part of macroeconomic management rather than energy policy, looking 30 years ahead. Good thing or bad thing? This can be seen as a one-off waste, funding the squeeze of the early Thatcher years, but leaving little for future generations left in the pot of gold at the end of the North Sea Rainbow. Yet for those who saw that drastic economic squeeze as essential, it was money well spent. Lawson said the oil taxes gave a healthy kick-start to the process of cutting the government deficit, though he always argued that the overall impact of North Sea oil was exaggerated. As to the profits from oil, they would be better invested privately. Lawson made his point by comparison. A peasant finds gold in his garden. Should he be allowed to mine it at his own speed and be left to allocate the proceeds between extra spending and saving for the day when the gold has been exhausted? Or should some authority force him to leave some of the gold in the ground to guard against profligacy? So, in his view, the transfer of oil profits into investments overseas, as happened after the abolition of exchange controls, rather than in, say, British manufacturing, 
was a good bargain for the country as a whole. British manufacturing continued to slither downhill, falling from 34 to 30 percent of national output in 1970 to 77, before oil properly came on stream, and then from 30 percent to 23 percent in the Great Oil Decade. By 2006, it accounted for less than 15 percent. According to the government's own figures, two million manufacturing jobs were lost at this time. Productivity inevitably rose in consequence, and the economy would recover very strongly. Though this does finally answer the question about whether too much expertise and chains of supply were lost, putting Britain permanently out of market she could otherwise have retained. Whichever view you take, this British Revolution could not have been sustained without the pipes and the rigs. Why did Margaret Thatcher say so little about North Sea oil or Geoffrey Howe? Could it be simply that in the heroic story of their remaking of the British economy, the Almighty's underwater gift was an embarrassingly vital support mechanism for which they could take absolutely no credit, and that therefore they were as unlikely to draw attention to it as actors apparently leaping through the air would be to the wires supporting them? Still, it was unfortunate. The roughnecks and roustabouts, the shuttle helicopter pilots landing in gale-forced winds on postage-stamp-like platforms, and the divers taking horrible risks on the ocean bed deserve a larger role in modern history. Ununionized, risk-taking, freebooting, they were, after all, model Thatcherites, every one. Let us return to Lawson's metaphor of the peasant with gold in his garden. The question is, whose garden? Had Scotland been an independent country, and had the lines of national territorial waters been drawn at an appropriate angle, the legal arguments about this were dense, then Scotland would undoubtedly have been a rich country. Like Biafra in Nigeria, it could have funded a breakaway on the basis of oil, though hopefully with less tragic effects. As we have seen, the Scottish National Party had spotted the possible consequences of oil early on. They had begun to worry Labour in the 60s with a series of stunning by-election successes. Whitehall had hit back. The Treasury produced a notional Scottish budget for 1967 to 68, showing Scotland deeply in the red. Given that Scotland had a relatively poor and relatively scattered population and a shrinking economic base, this was hardly surprising. But what difference would the oil revenues make? Suddenly, Whitehall came over all coy. Oil money was expertly mixed into national revenues. Jim Sillars, the MP who moved from Labour to the SNP via the briefly fashionable Scottish Labour Party, protested, "The potential embarrassment of each drop of the magic oil was dealt with by the simple, crooked device of removing oil revenues from any purely Scottish statistics. The fish caught and landed from Scottish waters are allowed to remain in Scotland's accounts, but the oil over which those fish swim—well, that's different." The SNP was not waiting for official confirmation of what it suspected. However, it had strong covert support in the Edinburgh banking world and could draw on some of the brightest economists north of the border. Within months of the first big BP oil strike, its chairman Billy Wolfe was declaring that oil should be a dominant part of its propaganda. In 1972, it launched its most famous slogan: "It's Scotland's oil." Followed a year later by the still more aggressive "Rich Scots or Poor Britons." Thanks to the recent release of government documents, we now know just how jumpy this made Whitehall. Civil servants told Labour ministers after the second 1974 election they should delay Harold Wilson's promised Scottish Assembly, Powerhouse Scotland, to stop the British economy being destabilised. 
By then, the SNP was claiming the support of a third of voters and had won 11 seats in the Commons. Progress towards devolution should be delayed for as long as possible, said one Mandarin. The longer this can be played, the better. The problem was that the civil service thought the SNP's calculations on the huge wealth that could come Scotland's way with oil were, if anything, an underestimate. One Treasury official wrote, It is conceivable that income per head in Scotland could be 25% or 30% higher than that prevailing in England during the 1980s, given independence. Another wrote bluntly, The Scots have really got us over a barrel here. But the Scots, whatever their suspicions and however vigorous the campaigning of the SNP, never knew quite how large that oily barrel was. Had they done so, it is likely that the politics of the later 70s and 80s would have been very different. The Scots and the Welsh leave us close to tears. Scotland and Wales had very different political cultures, but by the 60s they shared the sense of being parts of the UK in decline, whose old Labour elites no longer delivered the goods. Scotland's industrial heartland was dominated by coal, steel, shipbuilding and engineering. South Wales, built on coal and steel, was also culturally besieged, as people migrated to the richer new towns of southern England, and the Welsh language declined. Both these smaller countries asked themselves whether, if they cut free from the United Kingdom, they might somehow achieve a new beginning. The European common market showed that it was possible for small countries to thrive perfectly well. Even outside it, the Norwegians, Icelanders and Swiss seemed to be managing. No Western country seriously felt threatened by her neighbours anymore. Living through the political traumas of the 70s, almost everyone in England was to an extent trapped inside the nightmare. For Scots and the Welsh, there was the possibility, at least, of simply closing the door and walking away. Yet in neither country did the secessionists ever have majority support. In both countries, their base tended to be among small business people, academics and public servants, the kind who in England were, at the same time, joining the Liberals. But the Scottish National Party and Plaid Cymru had clear objectives effective political organisations, a certain fashionable rebel quality, and they scared the wits out of the established parties. These would be years when the break-up of Britain haunted many politicians, and when nightmares of IRA-style violence being copied elsewhere fueled best-selling books and television dramas. Once it had been easy to satirise druidical Welshmen capering about and plunking their harps, or collections of wild-eyed, bushy-haired Scottish poets in kilts and jerseys, but by the 70s it was not funny any longer. The Scottish story can be traced back to the beginning of this post-war story. On the 29th of October 1949, a raw day in Edinburgh, a solemn-faced, dark-suited crowd walked into the gloomy headquarters of the Church of Scotland, a parade of landowners and miners, aristocrats and shipyard workers, fat businessmen and lean clerics. They had come to sign a Scottish covenant, a practice last heard of in the bloody 17th century, when fanatic Presbyterians were taking on London and the losers had their heads lopped off in public. But this lot were hardly a revolutionary sight, and their document was full of sonorous assertions about their loyalty to the crown. There was an impromptu prayer. The Duke of Montrose signed his name. There would be another two million signatures in due course, nearly half of Scotland's adult population, politely requesting a Scottish Parliament again. Fast forward a few months and move to Westminster Abbey at dead of night. 
A handful of dark-coated Scottish students were busily jemmying loose a lump of stone, allegedly carried by a Greek prince and Pharaoh's daughter in the time of Moses, to Scotland via Ireland. This is the Stone of Destiny, on which Scotland's ancient king sat to be crowned. It had been swiped by the wicked English, and was being smuggled back to Scotland, where it would be hidden as an inanimate hostage. The stone was eventually returned to the police, draped in Scottish flags, and was finally returned to Scotland again in the 90s by the Conservatives. Soon afterwards, brand new post boxes with the symbol QE2 for the new Queen were being defaced or blown up across Scotland, where there had been no QE1. These are parts of the history of post-war Britain which hardly anyone in England has heard about or understands. Yet, at a time when Scotland is becoming ever more politically disassociated from London, it is a story which deserves to be remembered. Having abolished their own Parliament in the 1707 Act of Union, the Scots had become steadily keener on getting it back again ever since Victorian times. The first National Party of Scotland was formed in 1928, merging with the Scottish Party to become the Scottish National Party, or SNP, in 1934. By the end of the Second World War, Labour was committed to some kind of Scottish Parliament. Yet, Home Rule disappeared as an issue again for most people during the 40s and 50s, and indeed into the 60s. This was partly the binding-together effect of the war, which increased pride in being British. It was also because both Labour and the Conservatives, called Unionists in Scotland, had pursued policies of granting the Scots factories, agencies and jobs. In the age of centralism and planning, Scotland seemed to be getting quite a good deal. During the war, Churchill had appointed a visionary socialist called Tom Johnson, who had once been considered an excellent alternative to Attlee as the next Labour leader, as his Secretary of State for Scotland. Johnson was soon dubbed the uncrowned King of Scotland, and set about scattering hydroelectric schemes through the highlands, bringing electricity and work, ordering great commercial forests to be planted, reforming education, and generally carrying on like a progressive dictator. After the war, he continued running the hydro schemes, forestry and Scottish tourism outside party politics, a one-man socialist planning bureaucracy. He even tried to get fish farming started half a century before the technology was ready, though it would eventually employ tens of thousands. The Tories, then quite popular in Scotland, pursued similar policies, doling out industrial plants such as the Ravenscraig Steelworks and obliging the British Motor Corporation to build cars in Bathgate and the Hillman Imp to be constructed at Linwood. During the Wilson years, Scotland was run by Willie Ross, a Scottish secretary as authoritarian, self-certain and skilled as Johnson himself, a veritable second uncrowned king. His gifts included a nuclear reactor at Dunray, the Invergordon aluminium smelter and rescuing a Clyde shipyard. He set up the Highlands and Islands Development Board and the Scottish Development Agency. If planning could make a country rich, Scotland would be paradise. In the 60s, public spending per head there was a fifth above the English average. Through most of this time, Scottish nationalism was a mere midge of a movement, producing intense but very local irritation. That grand Scottish covenant signed in 1949 had simply been ignored. Labour dropped its old commitment to a Scottish Parliament in 1956. Nationalism was associated with poets, dreaming students and the odd eccentric aristocrat, a tartan irrelevance to the modern world. The man who did most to change that is almost forgotten now, including in his own party. He was not Billy Wolfe, the SNP's first charismatic post-war leader, 
but a farmer from Ayrshire called Ian MacDonald, who left his farm to organise the Nats full-time. Before 1962, when he took over, the SNP had fewer than 20 active branches and a membership of around 2,000. Three years later, under MacDonald's organising, there were 140 branches, and six years on, in 1968, the SNP had 484 branches across Scotland and 120,000 members. It is hard to think of a similar rate of growth in any British political party. With the distinctive CND logo everywhere at the time, the SNP came up with its own modernistic thistle loop, and this was soon glinting from lapels and jerseys across Scotland. It was at this stage a classic protest party, whose members tended to be prominent in anti-Vietnam and anti-nuclear protests. As disillusion grew, both with the post-Profumo Tories and with Harold Wilson, the SNP began to win first local council seats and then parliamentary by-elections. The first breakthrough came in Hamilton, a small industrial town outside Glasgow, where one of the SNP's new generation, Winnie Ewing, won a safe Labour seat in 1967 and was driven in triumph in a scarlet Scottish-made Hillman Imp to Westminster. Though she lost the seat in the general election, she was followed by Margot MacDonald, the blonde bombshell of Govan on the Clyde, and by rising success in local elections. In 1970, Donald Stewart became the first SNP victor in a general election contest, winning the Western Isles. In the first 1974 election, the party won a further six common seats, and four more in the October election, taking its total to an all-time record of 11, and the support of just over 30% of Scottish voters. This would give them a crucial power-broking role in the politics of the late 70s, which, as we shall see, they badly mishandled. Scotland's economy was doing badly in profound ways. Apart from the short-term boost of oil-related jobs, mainly in the northeast, industry was old-fashioned, riven by strife, badly managed and losing ground in every direction. There was a feeling that the country could not be run worse by its own parliament, that the days of London planning and the gifts of uncrowned kings had not, in fact, produced the modern country everyone hoped for. Labour became increasingly panicky. Harold Wilson deployed a favourite device, the setting up of a royal commission, takes minutes and wastes years, in his own formulation, which duly suggested devolution for Scotland and Wales. After plots and counterplots, Wilson finally imposed this on a reluctant Scottish party. It was a form of devolution strong enough to outrage many Labour left-wingers at Westminster, including the young Neil Kinnock, yet too weak to please the out-and-out home rulers in Scotland. A handful of politicians, officials and journalists left the Labour Party in the winter of 1975 to form the breakaway Scottish Labour Party under the charismatic Jim Sillers. It briefly captured the headlines before being infiltrated by Trotskyists who, like crocheted bedspreads and lava lamps, seemed to turn up everywhere in the 70s. The SLP duly split and then collapsed. Some of its members returned to Labour. Others, including Sillers, eventually ended up in the SNP. Back at Westminster, the new Labour leader Jim Callaghan began a long and weary battle to deliver home rule. Leading the fight was Michael Foote, a romantic enthusiast for devolution, despite the fact that his great hero, Nye Bevan, had been wholly opposed to such chauvinism. Yet the most single-minded and influential MP in the devolution debates of the 70s was probably the anti-devolution backbencher Tam Diel, who later led the Belgrano Inquisition. An old Etonian left-winger, he fueled himself late into the night with pockets full of hard-boiled eggs prepared by his housekeeper, 
and a head full of hard-boiled arguments about the breakup of Britain, prepared entirely by himself. His West Lothian question asked how Parliament could tolerate having Scottish and Welsh members who could vote on matters affecting the English while not having any authority over the same issues in their own constituencies, because they would be handled by a devolved Parliament. It has never been satisfactorily answered. Many believe it will one day end the union of Scotland and England. A bill for home rule was eventually enacted on the 31st of July 1978, after an exhausting parliamentary battle in which the government's fate hung in the balance night after night. But a key concession would end up scuppering the bill, and Callaghan, and the SNP too. The government had accepted that the Scottish Parliament would only be set up after a referendum in Scotland in which a simple majority would not be enough. At least 40% of the Scottish electorate must vote yes. Would this be so hard to achieve? When the referendum was finally held, the yes and no campaigns were both rather ragged. Most of the Scottish media were in favour of devolution revolution, and a yes vote was generally thought to be inevitable. The timing, however, was pitch-perfect terrible. The campaign ran in February 1979 against a backdrop of the winter of discontent, terrible weather and a collapse in government prestige. Voting against devolution was for some a way of registering contempt for Labour. Others simply could not be bothered. In the end, though most of Scotland voted in favour of Home Rule, turnout was low and only 32.9% voted yes, far below the 40% hurdle. Devolution was dead for 20 years to come. Callaghan, Foote and John Smith did everything they could to find some way of reviving the bill or postponing it, but by now the majority of the SNP had had enough. They issued ultimatums to the government and eventually put down a motion of censure, though not all of them voted. Mrs Thatcher saw her chance. Labour lost the vote by a whisker, and the general election of 1979 was duly triggered. This would bring about the election of a now implacable opponent of Home Rule. It would plunge Labour into chaos in Scotland as well as elsewhere. The SNP group was cut from 11 MPs to just two, and never regained the initiative. Earlier in this section we noted that Mrs Thatcher was lucky in her enemies, and the Scottish Nationalists were yet another good example. Wales's part in the story runs parallel to Scotland's in many ways. Like Scotland, Wales had become a post-war Labour stronghold in her industrial heartland, with a liberal tradition in the rural areas. Like Scotland, Wales had experienced a rise of interest in the national question between the wars. Plaid Cymru, the Party of Wales, had been founded in 1925, nine years before the SNP. Like the Scottish nationalists, the Welsh nationalists were dominated in the early years by literary men, poets and lecturers, and had little working-class support. In the post-war years, Wales, like Scotland, had benefited from the scattering of regional policy initiatives, Above all, the great steel rolling mill at Cranwern in 1962, but also the shot and blast furnace, the licensing centre at Swansea, the passport office at Newport, two nuclear power stations and factories run by Rover, Ford, Hoover, Hotpoint and others, the equivalent to the car-making plants and aluminium smelters of the Scots. Just as in the Scottish Highlands vast acreages of conifers were planted by the Forestry Commission, so too it happened across the hillsides of rural Wales. The Scots got a development agency, so did the Welsh. If the Scots popularly expressed their national pride through the up-and-down fortunes of their football team and the occasional even dodgier pop phenomenon like the Bay City Rollers, the Welsh had rugby. 
At Cardiff Arms Park, renamed the Welsh National Stadium in 1970, England failed to win a single game between 1964 and 1979. Politically, however, Wales was in a weaker position. She had been incorporated by England too early in her history to have developed separate institutions of modern statehood. Her Act of Union came in 1536, not 1707, and it was a crucial difference. Wales had no single powerful national church, no parliament to look back on, no Enlightenment universities or modern legal code of her own. Indeed, she had no official capital until Cardiff was recognised as such as late as 1955. No minister or administrative offices until the fifties, and no secretary of state for Wales until 1964. Welshness was celebrated more as a linguistic and religious quality, though the decline in religious attendance hit the non-conformist chapel tradition almost as hard as it hit the Church of England. Politically, the Welsh had looked to Westminster men as their heroes: David Lloyd George, most obviously, but Nye Bevan too. The decline of liberalism had left Wales dominated by Labour, and with all the drawbacks of the one-party statelet, internal backbiting, political stagnation, and an unbalanced attitude to London, which was simultaneously the remote and alien capital and the source of power, money, and jobs. Clever Welshmen, from Raymond Williams to Dylan Thomas, often emigrated, becoming exiled professors and writers, endlessly harking back to the romantic day before yesterday. In the fifties, Welsh nationalists began to find cultural and political issues which spurred them on. Instead of attacking post boxes and stealing the stone of destiny, Welsh nationalism was inspired to fight for the survival of the Welsh language. English road signs would be painted out. People refused to fill in forms written in English, and there were successful campaigns for more Welsh broadcasting. But the biggest early spur was water. Indeed, it could almost be said that water was the Welsh oil, particularly after the drowning of the Tewerin Valley in northwest Wales, to create a reservoir for the people of Liverpool. This was done by Act of Parliament in 1957, despite almost all Welsh MPs voting against it. As one historian put it, Liverpool's ability to ignore the virtually unanimous opinion of the representatives of the Welsh people confirmed one of the central tenets of Plaid Cymru: that the national Welsh community, under the existing order, was wholly powerless. Attacks on the Trewerin Reservoir followed, and the Free Wales Army was formed in 1963. Violent Welsh nationalism was thankfully almost as unpopular and badly organised as violent Scottish nationalism, but there were explosions in the 60s, and two men died in 1969 trying to blow up the Royal Train during the Prince of Wales's investiture. There would also be a more widespread and persistent campaign of burning out holiday homes and full-time homes owned by English incomers to Welsh-speaking areas. Plaid Cymru's first breakthrough came at the Carmarthen by-election of 1966, a year before the SNP won Hamilton. Gwynfor Evans, a nationalist campaigner since the 30s and Plaid Cymru's leader since 1945, would lose the seat in the 1970 general election. But two striking Plaid Cymru by-election performances in Rhondda West and Caerphilly in 1967 and 1968 suggested it was no flash in the pan. At last, complacent Welsh Labour was being challenged. In the first 1974 election, Plaid Cymru would win two seats and take a third in the second election of that year. Just as in Scotland, this produced a divided response among Labour in Wales. Should the nationalists be fought, as Neil Kinnock believed, or should they be paid to go away with offers of devolution, as Michael Foote thought? By then, like Scotland, the client economy of Wales was in very deep trouble. 
Yet, despite the success of Plaid Cymru in local elections during the final years of old Labour rule, they did not seem to pose quite the threat of the SNP. And of course, there was no oil boom in Welsh waters, so the proposed Welsh Assembly was to have fewer powers than the Scottish one. It was to oversee a large chunk of public expenditure, but would not be able to make laws. This was hardly likely to make anyone's blood pound. When the matter was put to a referendum, the Welsh voted overwhelmingly against the planned assembly by 956,000 votes to 243,000. Every one of the new Welsh counties voted no. Plaid Cymru, unlike the SNP, did not vote for the end of the Labour government, but in the Thatcher years, Wales, like Scotland, was dominated by the politics of resistance to conservatism. It would be a long wait. The Boyo and the Bolsheviks. Michael Foot's leadership saved the Labour Party from splitting into two, but was, in all other respects, a disaster. He was too old, too decent, too gentle to take on the hard left or to modernise his party. Foot's politics were those of a would-be parliamentary revolutionary detained in a second-hand bookshop. When roused, which was often, his hair would flap, his face contort with passion. His hands would whip around excitedly, and denunciations would pour from him with a fluency Martin Luther would envy. He was in his late sixties during his time as leader. He would be seventy just after the 1983 election, and he looked his age. Contemptuous of the shallow presentational tricks of television, he could look dishevelled and was famously denounced for wearing a donkey jacket. It was actually, he insisted, rather a smart green woolen coat at the cenotaph. His skills were for whipping up the socialist faithful in meetings or for finger-stabbing attacks on the Tory enemy in House of Commons debates. He seemed to live in an earlier century, though it was never clear which one. Communing with heroes such as Swift, Byron, or Hazlitt, rather than in a political system which depended on television performance, ruthless organisation, and managerial discipline, he was a political poet in a prose age. Perhaps nobody in the early eighties could have disciplined the Labour Party or reined in its wilder members. Foot did his best, yet he led Labour to the party's worst defeat in modern times, on the basis of a hard left. Anti-Europe, anti-nuclear. If it moves, nationalise it. Manifesto, aptly described by Gerald Kaufman as the longest suicide note in history. Kaufman had also bravely but fruitlessly urged him to stand down before the election. The campaign which followed has gone down in history as one of the least competent, most disorganised few weeks of chaos ever arranged by a modern political party. Foot impersonated a late nineteenth-century radical, touring open meetings and making long semi-literary effusions from crowded platforms to gatherings of the faithful. It was as if he had not condescended to notice the radio age, never mind the television one. He appeared with the very Trotskyists he had earlier denounced, and was clearly at odds with his deputy Dennis Healy over such minor matters as the defence of the country. Labour's two former prime ministers, Wilson and Callaghan. Both publicly attacked Foot's principled unilateralism. After all this, it was surprising that the party scraped into second place and held off the SDP-Liberal alliance. It is a measure of the affection felt for Michael Foot that his swift retirement after that defeat was greeted with little recrimination. Yet it also meant that when Neil Kinnock won the subsequent leadership election, he had a mandate for change no previous Labour leader had enjoyed. Enjoyed is perhaps not the word. Kinnock had won by a huge majority. 
he had 71% of the electoral college votes against 19% for his nearest rival, Roy Hattersley, while Tony Benn, the obvious left-wing challenger, was out of Parliament briefly, having lost his Bristol seat. Kinnock had been elected after a series of blistering campaign speeches, a left-winger by the standards of anyone who wasn't actually a revolutionary. He wanted the swift abandonment of all Britain's nuclear weapons. He believed in nationalisation and planning. He wanted Britain to withdraw from Europe. He wanted to abolish private medicine and to repeal the Tory laws on trade union reform. And to start with, the only fights he picked with his party were over organisational matters, such as the campaign to force Labour MPs to submit to reselection, which handed a noose to militant local activists. Yet after the chaos of the 1983 campaign, he was also sure that the party needed radical reform. Though the modern age of attempted ruthless control over the media is popularly believed to have begun with Peter Mandelson's arrival as Labour's Director of Communications, it actually began when Patricia Hewitt, a radical Australian known for her campaigning on civil liberties, joined Kinnock's new office. It was she who began keeping the leader away from journalists, trying to control interviews and placing him like a precious stone only in flattering settings. Kinnock, for his part, knew how unsightly old Labour looked to the rest of the country and was prepared, if not happy, to be groomed. He gathered round him a rugby scrum of tough and aggressive aides, many of whom went on to become ministers in the Blair years. Charles Clark, the burly son of a powerful Whitehall Mandarin. John Reid, a wild former communist Labour backbencher. Hewitt and Peter Mandelson. Kinnock was the first to flirt, indeed, to enter into full physical relations with the once abhorred world of advertising, and to seek out the support of pro-Labour pop singers such as Tracy Ullman and Billy Bragg, long before Cool Britannia was thought of in the Blair years. He smartened up his own style, ending the informal matiness which had made him popular among colleagues, and introduced a new code of discipline in the Shadow Cabinet, a code which would have had him thrown out a few years earlier. In the Commons, he tried hard to discomfit Thatcher at her awesome best, which was not easy and rarely successful. The two of them loathed each other with a chemical passion. Labour's dreadful poll ratings very slowly began to improve. There was talk of the Kinnock factor. But there were awesome problems for Labour which could not be dealt with by pop stars, friends in the advertising world, or well-educated Australian ladies barking at journalists. The first of these was that the party harboured a substantial and vocal minority of people who were not really parliamentary politicians at all, but revolutionaries of one kind or another. They included Arthur Scargill and his brand of insurrectionary trade unionism, the Trotskyist militant tendency, which had been busy infiltrating the party since the 60s, and assorted hard-left councils determined to defy Thatcher, also known as the democratically elected government, by various illegal stratagems. Kinnock dealt with them all. Had he not done so, new Labour would never have happened, and Tony Blair would have enjoyed a well-remunerated and obscure career as a genial barrister specialising in employment law. Yet Kinnock himself was a passionate man whose own politics were to the left of the new mood of the country. He was beginning an agonising journey which meant confronting and defeating people who sounded not so different from his younger self, while moving steadily but never quite far enough towards the centre. On this journey, much of his natural wit, his balls of the feet, exuberant, extempore rhetoric and convivial bounce would be silenced, sellotaped and sedated, as he might well have alliterated. He had come into politics as if it was rugby, 
us against them, a violent contact sport, much enjoyed by all participants. He found that in leadership it was more serious, drearier, and nastier than rugby. The game was changing. Week after week he was confronting in Thatcher someone whose principles had set firm long before, and whose politics, love them or hate them, seemed to express those principles. Yet he was by necessity changing, a man on the move, who could not renounce his former beliefs, nor yet quite stand by them. He was always having to shade, to hedge and to qualify, to dodge the ball, not kick it. The press soon dubbed him the Welsh windbag. The first and hardest example of what he was up against came with the miners' strike. As we have seen, Kinnock and Scargill loathed each other. Indeed, the NUM president may have been the only human being on the planet that Kinnock disliked more than Margaret Thatcher. He distrusted Scargill's aims, despised his tactics, and realised early on that he was certain to fail. As the spawn of socialist Welsh miners, Kinnock could not demonise the strike without demonising his own upbringing and origins, yet he knew it was a disaster. As the violence spread, the Conservatives and the press were waiting for him to denounce the pickets and to praise the police. He simply could not. Too many of his own side thought the violence was the fault of the police. As the strike hardened, one obvious tactic was to attack Scargill's failure to hold a national ballot. Yet, acutely conscious of the feelings of striking miners, he could not bring himself to attack the embattled trade union. So he was caught, volubly, even eloquently, inarticulate, between the rock of Thatcher and the hard place of Scargill. In the Commons, white-faced, week by week, he was taunted by the Tories for his weakness. In the coalfields, he was denounced as the miner's son, too frightened to come to the support of the miners. So he made lengthy arguments about the case for coal and the harshness of the Tories, which were, as he knew full well, only adjacent to the row consuming the nation. These were impossible circumstances. In them, Kinnock at least managed to avoid fusing Labour and the NUM in the minds of floating voters, ensuring that Scargill's utter political defeat was his alone. But this lost year destroyed his early momentum and dampened down his old blazing certainty. It stole his huil, and a Welsh politician without huil is like a Jewish agent without chutzpah. It is said that the difference between being an opposition politician and a government one is that in government you get up each morning and decide what to do, while in opposition you get up and decide what you are going to say. It is hardly Kinnock's fault that in British politics he is remembered for talking. His critics recall his imprecise long-windedness, the product of self-critical and painful political readjustment. His admirers recall his great platform speeches, the saw-edged wit and air-punching passion. There was one time, however, lasting for just a few minutes, when Kinnock spoke so well he united most of the political world in admiration. This happened on the 1st of October 1985 at the main auditorium in Bournemouth, the well-off Dorset Coastal Resort where Labour conferences never seem entirely at home. A few days earlier, Liverpool City Council, formerly Labour-run but in fact controlled by the Revolutionary Socialist League, had sent out redundancy notices to its 31,000 staff. The revolutionaries, known by the name of their newspaper, Militant, were a party within a party, a parasitic body nuzzled inside Labour and chewing its guts. 
They had some 5,000 members who paid a proportion of their incomes to the RSL, so that the militant tendency had 140 full-time workers, more than the staff of the Social Democrats and Liberals combined. They were present all round the country, but Liverpool was their great stronghold. There they practised Trotsky's politics of the transitional demand, the habit of making impractical demands for more spending, higher wages and so on, so that when the capitalist lackeys refuse them, you can push on to the next stage, leading to collapse and then revolution. In Liverpool, where they were building thousands of new council houses, this meant setting an illegal council budget and cheerfully bankrupting the city. Sending out the redundancy notices to the council's entire staff was supposed to show Thatcher they would not back down or shrink from the chaos ahead. Like Scargill, militants' leaders thought they could destroy the Tories on the streets. Kinnock had thought of taking them on a year earlier, but had decided the miners' strike made that politically impossible. The Liverpool mayhem gave him his chance. So, in the middle of his speech at Bournemouth, up to then a fairly conventional Labour leader's address, attacking the other parties and cheering up the hall, Kinnock struck. It was time, he suddenly said, for Labour to show the public that it was serious. Implausible promises would not win political victory. I'll tell you what happens with impossible promises. You start with far-fetched resolutions. They are then pickled into a rigid dogma, a code, and you go through the years sticking to that, outdated, misplaced, irrelevant to the real needs, and you end up in the grotesque chaos of a Labour Council, a Labour Council, hiring taxis to scuttle round a city, handing out redundancy notices to its own workers. By now he had whipped himself into real anger, shouting, yet also just in control. The best speeches are made on the lip of the curve of the track, an inch away from crashing into incoherence. Kinnock's enemies were in front of him. All the pent-up frustrations of the past year were being released. The hall came alive. Militant leaders like Derek Hatton, a man with the looks of a recently retired footballer, stood up and yelled back. Boos came from left-wingers. Uncertain applause came from the loyalists. The pompous left-wing MP Eric Heffer, who had once begun a speech in the Commons with the immortal words, I, like Jesus Christ, am the son of a carpenter, stood up and stomped from the hall, followed by camera crews and journalists. This was drama of a kind even Labour conferences were unused to. Kinnock went on, I'm telling you, and you'll listen, you can't play politics with people's jobs and with people's services or with their homes. There was another huge outburst, now both of cheers and of boos. Kinnock insisted that the voice of people with real needs was louder than all the booing that could be assembled. The people will not, cannot abide posturing. They cannot respect the gesture generals or the tendency tacticians. Alliteration, then eruption. Most of those interviewed said it was one of the most important and courageous speeches they had ever heard, though the hard left was venomously hostile. The newspapers, used to kicking Kinnock, were almost delirious with praise. David Blunkett, the blind socialist leader of Sheffield City Council, who would later serve in the Blair cabinets, organised a climb-down on a militant-sponsored motion, much to Kinnock's annoyance. But the speech was a genuine turning point. By the end of the following month, Liverpool District Labour Party, from which Militant drew its power, was suspended, and an inquiry had been set up. By the spring of 1986, leaders of Militant had been identified and charged with behaving in a way incompatible with Labour membership. The process of expelling them was noisy, legally fraught, 
and time-consuming, though more than a hundred were eventually expelled. As important, there was a strong tide towards Kinnock across the rest of the party, with many left-wingers cutting their ties to the revolutionaries. There were many battles with the hard left to come, and several pro-militant MPs were elected to the Commons. Newspaper stories about loony left councils, allegedly banning black bin bags on the grounds of racism and ordering teachers to stop using nursery rhymes for the same reason, would continue to be used to taunt Labour. Yet by standing up openly to the Trotskyist menace, as Wilson, Callaghan and Foote had not, Kinnock gave his party a new start. It began to draw away from the SDP Liberal Alliance in the polls and do much better in local elections too. It was the moment when new Labour became possible. Yet neither this nor the new fashion for better controlled, slicker and sharper management that Kinnock brought in would do the party much good against Thatcher in the election that followed. Whatever glossy pamphlets, well-made adulatory films and carefully planned photo opportunities could do was done. Mandelson, a former student leader and television producer whose grandfather had been Herbert Morrison, became the best known of the modernisers. Prince Charles greeted him as the Red Rose Man for his role in ditching the old red banner as Labour's symbol and substituting a long-stemmed rose. Mandelson was certainly a single-minded and devoted reformer, cajoling and bullying a generally anti-Labour press. But he was not the only one. The Red Rose had been suggested by others, a copy of European Socialist Party imagery. Yet symbolism could not mask the fact that in its policies Labour was still behind the public mood. Despite mass unemployment, Thatcher's market optimism was filtering through. Labour might have ditched the red flag, but it was still committed to renationalisation, planning a national investment bank and unilateral nuclear disarmament, a personal cause for both Kinnock and his wife Glenys over the previous 20 years. The mid-80s were a time when, after ferocious arguments about disarmament and the Russian invasion of Afghanistan, then a spate of espionage cases, the Cold War was finally thawing. In the White House, President Reagan, scourge of the evil empire, was set on creating Star Wars, the orbiting satellite and anti-missile system intended to make the United States invulnerable to Russian attack. Yet he was ready to talk too, as the famous summit with Gorbachev at Reykjavik showed. There the Russians agreed to big missile reductions and the Americans declined to scrap Star Wars. It was not a time for the old certainties. Yet for Kinnock, Support for unilateral nuclear disarmament was fundamental to his political personality. It was the reflex response to those who accused him of selling out his socialism. It was a source of some of his best rhetoric. He therefore stuck with the policy, even as he came to realise just how damaging it was to Labour's image among swing voters. He was clear about it. Under Labour, all the British and American nuclear bases would be closed. The Trident nuclear submarine force cancelled. All existing missiles scrapped, and Britain would no longer expect any nuclear protection from the United States in time of war. Instead, more money would be spent on tanks and conventional warships. Kinnock was forceful and detailed about all this, and the more he spoke, the more Labour's ratings went down. He set off gamely trying to sell the CND line as no kind of surrender when in Russia, and something wholly compatible with NATO membership while in Washington, where on his third visit, Reagan's team humiliated him with a 20-minute meeting, followed by a coldly hostile briefing. All of this did him a lot of good among many traditional Labour supporters, 
Glenys turned up at the women's protest camp at Greenham Common. But it was derided in the press, helped the SDP, and was unpopular with just the floating voter Middle England people Labour desperately needed to win back. In the 1987 general election campaign, Kinnock's explanation about why Britain would not simply have to surrender if threatened by a Soviet nuclear attack sounded as if he was advocating some kind of Dad's Army guerrilla campaign once the Russians had got here. With policies like these, he was not putting Thatcher under the kind of pressure which, perhaps, she needed. A Revolution's Midlife Crisis There had been some bad moments for the second Thatcher government. Most obviously, she had nearly been assassinated. The IRA bomb, which demolished a chunk of the Grand Hotel at Brighton during the 1984 Conservative Conference, was intended as a response to Mrs Thatcher's hard line at the time of the 1981 hunger strike. The plot had been to murder the British cabinet and prime minister and plunge the country into political chaos, resulting in withdrawal from all Ireland. As for her, when it went off at 2.50, she was still working on an official paper about Liverpool's Garden Festival, having finished writing her speech ten minutes earlier, so she was not even woken up. The blast scattered broken glass on her bedroom carpet and filled her mouth with dust. She then decamped to lie fully clothed in the bedroom of a nearby police college, pausing only to kneel and pray with her personal assistant, Cynthia Crawford, or Crawfy, when they heard that the bomb had killed the wife of the cabinet minister, John Wakeham, and nearly killed him, killed the Tory MP Anthony Berry, had badly injured Norman Tebbit, and paralysed his wife. After less than an hour's fitful sleep, and with her cabinet hurriedly dressed in clothes from a nearby branch of Marks and Spencer, their dresses and suits still being in the half-wrecked hotel, she rewrote her speech and told the still-stunned conference that they had witnessed an attempt to cripple the government. And the fact that we are gathered here now, shocked but composed and determined, is a sign not only that this attack has failed, but that all attempts to destroy democracy by terrorism will fail. The final death toll from Brighton was five dead and several more seriously injured, but its consequences for British politics, which could have been momentous, turned out to be minimal. If the IRA could not shake her, could anything else? There had been internal rows, not only over Westland, but more ominously for the future, about economic policy. Her Chancellor, Nigel Lawson, had wanted to replace the old and rather wobbly system of controlling the money supply through targets, the medium-term financial strategy, with a new stratagem, tying the pound to the German mark in the European Exchange Rate System, or ERM. This was an admission of failure. The older system of measuring money was useless in the world of global fast money described earlier. Using Germanic bondage was an alternative. In effect, Britain would have subcontracted her anti-inflationary policy to the more successful and harder-faced disciplinarians of the West German Central Bank. Lawson was keen. She was not. If anyone was to play dominatrix round here, it would be her. At the time, little of this debate bubbled from the specialist financial world into general political life. Other rows did. There was the Westland affair itself, but also a botched sale of British Leyland, and the highly unpopular use of British air bases for President Reagan's attack on Libya in 1986. After her hugely successful fight to claw back some of Britain's overpayment to the European Community Budget in her first term, these were years of Thatcherite drift over Europe, which would so fatally damage her at the end. Jacques Delors, later her great enemy, had been appointed President of the European Commission and begun his grand plan for the next stages of union. 
The single European Act, which smashed down thousands of national laws preventing free trade inside the EC, promising free movement of goods, capital, services and people, and presenting the single currency, was passed with her urgent approval. She poo-pooed the idea that when the Continentals talked of economic and political union, they really meant it. She would regret all this later. At home, a wider dilemma was emerging right across domestic policy, from the inner cities to hospitals, schools to police forces. It was one which would puzzle both her successor governments, John Majors and Tony Blair's. It was simply this, how does a modern government get things done? In the economy, she had an answer. Government sets the rules, delivers sound money, and then stands back letting other people get on with it. In practice... She often behaved differently, always more pragmatic and interventionist than her image suggested. At least, however, the principle was clear. But when it came to the public services, there was no similar principle. Where were the staunch, independent-spirited movers and shakers in the hospitals, town halls, or the school system, the equivalent for public life of the entrepreneurs and risk-takers she admired in business? If government stood back and just let go of schools, hospitals, inner cities, who would be waiting to catch them? Before the Thatcher Revolution, the Conservatives had been seen as, on balance, defenders of local democracy. They were very strongly represented in councils across the country and had been on the receiving end of some of the most thuggish threats from Labour governments intent, for instance, on abolishing grammar schools. Conservatives had seen local representatives on hospital boards and education authorities as bulwarks against socialist Whitehall. Margaret Thatcher herself had good reason to recall the days of sturdy local independence, doing the public's work on unpaid committees, for her father, Alderman Roberts, had been one of them. In the 70s, Tory think tanks regularly produced reports calling for stronger localism, the building of a rich civil society in which independent institutions, churches, schools, charities, clubs and the rest would spread autonomy and freedom. It was the theme of the most influential conservative philosopher of post-war Britain, Michael Oakeshott. The Tory vision emphatically included elected local government. In 1978, two right-wing conservative politicians, for instance, wrote a passionate pamphlet complaining that local government is being deprived of more and more of the functions it used to be thought capable of fulfilling. Yet in power, Thatcher and her ministers could not trust local government or any elected and therefore independent bodies at all. Between 1979 and 1994, an astonishing 150 Acts of Parliament were passed, removing powers from local authorities, and £24 billion a year, at 1994 prices, had been switched from them to unelected and mostly secretive gatherings. The first two Thatcher governments transferred power and discretion away from people who had stood openly for election and towards the subservient agents of Whitehall, often paid-up party members and well-meaning stooges. Ministers, whether wet or dry, competed to show her their zeal by taking the initiative away from organisations on the ground. Michael Heseltine attacked local government with new auditing arrangements, curbs on how much tax they could raise, and then spending caps as well. Nicholas Ridley, an environment secretary, forced them to put out a wide range of services to tender for private companies, telling local councils in the harshest terms that no dissent was permissible. We might have to force them to expose their activities to competition if they did not choose to do that themselves. So, there was no public service equivalent of privatisation. In hospitals and schools, 
Thatcher had eventually rejected the radical alternatives of fees, private management, selection and independence when offered them by the CPRS, Central Policy Review staff. Stirred by the idea, she was too cautious to follow where it led. If neither new private nor old public, then what? The answer turned out to be expensive bureaucratic central activity, which made ministers feel important. In the health service, early attempts to decentralise were rapidly reversed, and a vast top-down system of targets and measurements was put in place, driven by a new planning organisation. It cost more, and the service seemed to get worse. Similar centralist power grabs took place in urban regeneration, one of the most visible and immediate areas of government action, where unelected corporations, UDCs rather than elected councils, got the money to pour into run-down cities. The biggest city councils, notably the Greater London Council, were simply abolished. Its powers were distributed, including to an unelected organisation controlled by Whitehall. As one critic, Simon Jenkins, pointed out, by 1990... There were some 12,000 laymen and women running London on an appointed basis against just 1,900 elected borough councillors. Even in housing, the gap left by the sale of council homes was met by the rise of the housing corporation, dispersing 90% of the money used by housing associations to build new cheap homes. In the Thatcher years, its staff grew sevenfold and its budget twentyfold. Back in the mid-80s, she did, to be fair, have other things on her mind. Personal relationships matter as much in modern diplomacy as they did in the Renaissance, and the Thatcher-Gorbachev courtship engaged her imagination and human interest. She was becoming the closest ally Ronald Reagan had in another international relationship, which was of huge emotional and political significance to her. In these years, she had become an international diva of conservative politics, fated by crowds from Russia and China to New York. Her wardrobe, coded depending on where an outfit had first been worn, told its own story. Paris Opera, Washington Pink, Reagan Navy, Toronto Turquoise, Tokyo Blue, Kremlin Silver, Peking Black. Meanwhile, she was negotiating the hard detail of Hong Kong's transitional status before it was handed over to Communist China in 1997. She got a torrid time at Commonwealth conferences for her opposition to sanctions against the apartheid regime in South Africa, and where she gave as good as she got. At home, the problem of persistently high unemployment was nagging away, though it started to fall from the summer of 1986, while Tory strategists still seemed to lack a clear idea about how to deal with the unfamiliar threat of the Two Davids and the Liberal SDP alliance. And, electorally, the multiple failures and political threats turned out to matter not at all. End of disc seventeen.